Welcome to the tactics meeting. Uh, I'm your host, Dan Smiley, response manager for the Washington State Maritime Cooperative and with Gallagher Marine Systems. And today on the tactics meeting, we're going to be talking about the emergency response towing vessel located at Nia Bay in Washington. And to help us with that, we have Captain Michael Moore, United States Coast Guard, retired, currently vice president at the Pacific Merchants Shipping Association and the chairman of the Emergency Response Towing Vessel Compliance Group. Mike, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for doing this. I'm excited to have you. We also have Captain John Venture, United States Coast Guard retired, the executive director of the Puget Sound Marine Exchange. John, welcome to the program. Good morning, Dan. Thank you. And we're excited to have Dale Jensen, Spills Program Manager for the Washington State Department of Ecology. Welcome, Dale. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for doing this. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. And my partner in crime, our executive producer, Sonia Larson, Response Technology Specialist with the Boston State Department of Ecology. Sonia, great to have you. Thanks, Dan. Good morning. Good morning. So, Mike, I'm going to start with you. What is the history behind the emergency response towing vessel? I mean, the maritime industry has been working to make sure that ships don't go aground for centuries. I think you pointed out before we started that the first emergency response towing vessel was one canoe <laughs> towing another canoe, stopping them from going over a waterfall. So this, is, yeah, so this idea isn't new, but how did we come to this point where we have an ERTV sitting in Washington? Well, it certainly isn't new, but um, I think the whole history of uh, the tug itself it is very interesting, uh, you know, developed to help assist uh, vessels in and out of port or to tow barges or to move things around. Um, if you look at the history of marine safety, you'll find that it's, um, it, it's completely based on responding to an incident or an accident and trying to come up with ways to prevent recurrence. And so that's the reactive mode. And so you have these big accidents, a boiler blows up and you have a boiler inspection service or you have uh, something go wrong on, on the construction of a, uh, a tanker. And so you change the requirements how you build a tanker. Uh, but about the eighties, we started getting more proactive and started looking at leading indicators and how can we interrupt the causal chain and keep things from happening. And one of those things you can do is to use the tool called a tug to go out and, and interrupt a causal chain in, in the event you have a vessel that's disabled. Um, most most uh, prominently folks think about a vessel that loses power, but you can lose steering, you can lose power, you could have a, a fire, uh, whatever it is, it, 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 it reduces the operational capability of the vessel such that it can't control its own movement. And so these tugs that were made for the harbor to assist vessels in and out or to tow things started developing other capabilities that would allow them to do open ocean towing and to go out and uh, put a line on a, on a disabled vessel. And it takes a skilled crew and it takes certain kind of uh, equipment set up. And of course you gotta be fueled up and ready to go. And then most importantly, and this is where I kind of came in um, when I was uh, captain of the port here is that instead of monitoring or, or uh, watching an incident develop and seeing if you need to do that, I, I, I felt like we needed to be more proactive. So when a vessel had an issue, we just started getting a tug going that direction, started requiring the, 
closest suitable tug to to move that way so that you're you you don't burn uh, an hour or two or three or four or five um, in the beginning of the incident waiting and assessing and then you find out oh, I wish I would have had those four or five hours back so the industry developed an international tug of opportunity system because there was a push to have this tug at Nia Bay and other places and they felt like can we leverage all the tugs that are moving around anyway and they use transponders and started tracking over 100 tugs in here in Canada uh, so that you can identify the nearest suitable tug more rapidly. Uh, ultimately, that led to, uh, and Dale will talk about this, that led to the, the state, um, the federal government, um, industry all working on putting a tug out there for the winter months where you have the most storms and the highest winds and, and the um, most difficult situations all the way into an all a year round tug. And um, I'm sure Dale will fill you in on that, but that's sort of the real quick history of the tug. Uh, the tug is a tool, helps uh, vessels getting in and out. Off, obviously they also tow uh, and they run light quite a bit uh, when they're in between jobs. And so leveraging that capability within our system uh, to tap into those, those, um, those, the tug presence, if you will, the tug saturation within Puget Sound is an important element. It just so happens we have such a large um, area to cover that the, the Nia Bay tug started to become the, the focal point of emergency response towing vessels for the region, even though all these other vessels, in fact, even this last week, John can mention this, he had a, had a uh, vessel lose power inside the system here and the nearest tug was, um, was used to uh, put a line on it. So the whole system depends on tugs uh, getting in and out safely. And uh, in this case, this is a dedicated tug in a particular location to provide a quicker response to the uh, coastal area in the outer strait of Juan de Fuca. Dale Jensen, how did Washington State end up involved in the emergency response uh, towing? I, I hesitate to call it a business, but uh, a prevention world. Well, Dan, that's that's a really good question, and um, you know, I, I came into the program in in two thousand and one, so we were there were had been a lot of conversations uh, up to that point in a couple of uh, seasons, as as Mike had talked about, um, you know, looking at the winter uh, months and having a, a tug positioned out there. There was a lot of uh, you know the state of Washington, the the public. Um, it has a lot of passion uh, around protecting you know, our waters and, and our shoreline. And so there were lots of uh, passionate conversations around this, certainly uh, not only what you know, Mike and, and John have talked about uh, from a, a prevention uh, standpoint, but uh, certainly making sure that the, the resources and the peculiarities uh, here uh, in the state uh, were protected. The, the historical uh, cultural resources uh, were protected, and I think, you know, part of it. Part of it too was um, it was a challenge uh, in the early years to find a way to fund this. And as we talked about the international tug of opportunities in concept, I think at the time it was it was a really good concept, but having a tug of of the capability to respond to some of the incidents. Uh, wasn't easily available. You know, those tugs were often assigned to um, other other responsibilities, and and time was of the essence. Um, and it, as uh, you know, Mike noted, 147 miles, you know, from Commencement Bay out to the mouth of 
of the Shueno and the Fuca uh, is, is a long uh, time uh, to get out there. Um, we'd had uh, some uh, incidents uh, out there earlier on, uh, of course, 10 years uh, prior to when the, the tug was first out there, we had the Exxon Valdez, we had Nesteca. Uh, so there was a, a lot of energy, especially from the coastal tribes, you know, too, um, and the concern uh, of the impacts to, to their historical and cultural resources, uh, too. So the state you know, the state has stepped into it. And of course there's, you know, what is the role of, what is the role of the state? Um, we pursued uh, seasonal funding, you know, early on. And then, and then um, you know, began uh, to uh, get the experience that uh, demonstrated, you know, moving towards uh, the, uh, the place where we are now around the emergency response uh, towing uh, vessel. Uh, and that group that that manages it that Mike leads, and and it was but it was up until um, you know about 2008 uh, timeframe before we got the first uh, year round of funding for that. But as has been as Mike noted, there was a combination of state and federal funding uh, up to that point. But there's a lot to be learned. There was a lots of uh, lots of energy around it. There were different perspectives around whether a permanent tug should be uh, positioned out there, um, who should pay for it, how it's gonna get paid for. Um, it's a huge investment to, to have, you know, sitting there uh, just in case. Um, so there, there were lots of, uh, lots of different, you know, perspectives, but I think the, that operating, operating seasonally, um, you know, up until 2008, then having year round, uh, funding um, and then leading into have an industry operated and funded uh, tug was a great, great move. There's always lots of conversations around whether um, whether it was a save or assist or it prevented something. But I can but I can assure you that the state of Washington and the folks here have been really um, really relieved and really appreciate uh, having it out there. Uh, certainly in, in the public uh, settings too. It's amazing how many people, you know, know about the tug um, and they know about, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a point of pride too. It's a, pr a point of, of pride uh, having it out there and knowing that uh, the coastal areas and the resources um, are protected and that commerce um, is, is safe and operating through that uh, as well. Um, one thing I know Mike's, you know, jump wanting to, you know, be, jump in here, but I think the other point that was really difficult during that, that time frame was always, um, you know, the vessels transiting in and out of, of Canada as well. And, you know, that um, the Nibay tug uh, certainly has, has uh, provided uh, some assurances to a lot of the Canadian uh, vessels transiting in and out of Canada too. I know we both worked you know, the state level industry partners have worked to try to get uh, Canada to pay into at least the standby uh, side of it. Um, once that tug is released, uh, you know, they're paying for it, but, um, but I think it's provided assurance for both uh, Canada uh, and the U.S. Captain Moore? Yeah, I'd like to follow that up a little bit. Uh, one of the other elements, Dell, I think it's, uh, 
uh, pretty interesting to discuss is that um, in this whole spectrum of having it out there seasonally versus all year long, it, it was the capability of the tug. Yep. Uh, and there are some people involved in the public policy arena that, you know, you, you know, this is not their expertise. They just wanted the biggest, baddest tug around, right? Big, huge thing. I remember even a proposal that it ought to be big enough to take on uh, all the all the uh, folks on a particular vessel, and then we had to bring up. Well, you, you mean a cruise ship with twenty five hundred and eight hundred? No, that's not what we meant. Well, at the end of the day, um, we did get it focused down to the job at hand, which is to minimize the risk of a drift grounding, and that got into an engineering analysis about what kind of vessels we have out there, what size, what sail area. Uh, in what kind of weather we had to define severe weather and that that through one of the engineering consultants around here uh, got reduced down to the uh, a bollard pool number uh, and that bollard pool number is is met and most most often exceeded by the um, tug service provider FOSS in this case uh, and and really there's an interesting story there we had a vessel a tanker um, going to razor blades really that was towed out of um, Oregon a long time ago many years ago, 20 years ago. And, um, and, and, and the largest vessel out there that was towing it across the ocean was not nimble enough to rehook up after, uh, after breaking the tow wire. And another vessel went out, another tug went out that was a little too big to do it too. And it turns out the tug, the size of which is at Mia Bay was able to get out there and uh, get the lineup. So there's, there's, the, there's the process of getting a lineup safely and the process of you know uh, of controlling the vessel's drift or, or changing its attitude towards the seas and so forth and slowing down the drift towards rocks and getting control over it is much more the focused goal than you know going out and being an ocean going tug that's going to tow it across to Asia or something. That's just not the case. The, the, the focus is on job one and I'm glad we ultimately got to that focus because the other proposals um, would not have allowed it to be tied up at Nia Bay and, and you, you would have been too big to do certain kind of jobs. So I think we right-sized the thing for the, for the job or the task, which is to go out there and mitigate that, that risk. And, and yes, as Dale said, not everything's considered a say. I mean, you're just going out and standing by, just going on the way to the vessel and the vessel self-repairs, that's okay. It went out, turns around, comes back. It goes out and stands by or it goes down and escorts a vessel that's reduced uh, propulsion down to 10 or 11 knots in, into Port Angeles. Um, I, you know, as captain of the port, I think a lot of my lieutenants used to say, look, if you have a doubt, just get a tug, he'll be happier. And, the, and the, whole, the whole point is, let's get it rolling early. You can't get that first hour back. Uh, so where the ITOS system, whatever it was, let's get, let's get something rolling early until we know more about the situation on the vessel and, and how long self-repair might take or self-repair is even possible and, and uh, you know, get, get more uh, control over the situation. Yeah, and that, yeah, good point, Mike. And I, I think the other thing too was there were conversations around where the tug should be positioned too, right? Because we were looking at the whole uh, coastline, but the the value of putting it at Nia Bay was it didn't have bar crossings uh, to to cross like at Grays Harbor or the Columbia River. So even the Attigan Pass, even even during that time, it was severe weather conditions. It was difficult to get a tug out of the Columbia River and across the bar for some time. So we did get the, the, the Nia Bay tug underway. And at the time we had our oil spill response account where we could 
use you know that money to get the vessel you know underway which we still have access you know to that fund to be able to do that but the i think the industry and the management team you know of the emergency response towing vessel has done a great job uh, at making sure it's 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 underway it's it's out there it's it's there just in case to evaluate the situation as the furthest a resource forward but yeah I, I, you know mike brings up a lot of a lot of good points and as as i'm my old brain cells are coming forward and thinking about those times but so so much uh debate around the the tug and capability and i i agree it was right size it took a lot to get there um and there were you know there were other tug systems that were looked at all over the world uh we were being compared uh we were you know getting pressure to compare to those um, look what Norway has, or look what you know some other you know countries had, but I I really I really do um, you know believe that we ended up with just the right you know fit. The other challenge was um, you know getting in and out of Nia Bay too. You know, so it wasn't wasn't only uh, Bellard Pole, but we wanted a vessel that could deploy within 20 minutes. We wanted it you know to be out there and underway. Um, there were draft challenges uh, at Nia Bay for larger vessels, um, but but positioning there uh, versus uh, out of Grays Harbor or off out of the Columbia River in Astoria, um, it it just has turned out to be the best possible you know position to move north you know up off of uh, Vancouver Island shore or even south um, as far as you know Oregon. You know, to uh, you know, make sure that that we were protecting the resources uh, of the state and uh, keeping the operations as safe as possible. Yeah, so, I think, I, yeah, yeah, I think I think it's really worth noting that uh, we came down to 180,000 tons, uh, 70 ball pulls for 180,000 ton vessel. Of course, all that the cruise ship is not a car carrier, and a car carrier is not a bulker, and a bulker is not a tanker, and so on. But the whole point here is no matter how big the vessel is going to be, and there are some some bulkers that call in Canada that are bigger than that, but not, not in Puget Sound. Um, the whole point is you can still go out, this vessel can still go out, put a line up and reorient the vessel to the sea and wind conditions and slow down that drift. Uh, we did have a vessel, again, 20 or 20, 21 years ago, uh, loose power is the container ship about 20 miles off the entrance there, 25 miles off the entrance and ended up drifting north. The predominant drift for these storms is to the north, uh, to, to Canada. This particular vessel drifted uh, at over two knots uh, up towards the north end of Vancouver Island, and the tug that responded was a Crowley tug that went up the inside passage and met it at the top end. So we kind of know most of the predominant drift scenarios because, as Dale said, we did a lot of studying on this. Like, where, where are you going to drift if you're in the Strait of Juan de Fuca? What if you're a tanker and you're loaded? You're going to drift east and west. What if you're offshore and you got a big sail area and you got a lot of wind coming out of the south? Well, you're going to drift to the north predominantly with the current and the wind. And so kind of knowing that uh, got into this whole situation of where to put it, and, and Canada wasn't going to have one up there at that time. And so Nia Bay, like Dale said, became the deal. And yes, they've had to get underway from time to time because of tides, extreme tides. Um, but for the most part, they are able to um, uh, stay at the dock there and be ready to get underway in 20 minutes. John, you had a comment? No, I was going to mention the fact what Mike just said. The uh, vessel that's out there now does is tide challenged and and draft challenged, and it has to get underway periodically for the tides, low tides. So it's uh, 
actually this time of year, it's quite often uh, at least uh, a few days of the month that it is underway outside in the Strait of Juan de Fuca so that it can make sure that it's available. And Sonia's nodding her head to say, we'll give you full credit for getting underway twice a month as part of your exercise program, right, right, Sonia? <laughs> And good point, you know, uh, you know, Mike, a, a couple more, a couple more, you know, factors of that, of course, is around, around the time of the, you know, the around 2008 timeframe, um, you'd asked the, me about the state's role early on, you know, Dan too, and, and of course, we have very strong um, oil spill contingency plans, you know, here in our state too, and, and, uh, you know, we we strongly exercise uh, those plans, um, and we built in uh, the tug as a resource that uh, plan holders had to reference uh, in their plans, so they understood that that was a capability that was there, not only as a prevention uh, tool, but a preparedness uh, planning you know tool as well. Um, and then you know we've talked about you know bollard pole. Uh, we've talked about you know fast deployment. We also wanted to make sure it was a, a 24/7 availability and in, in, in operation. You know we had uh, we wanted to make sure that it was equipped with a ship, ship anchor recovery uh, chain and line throwing you know guns. Uh, we had uh, damage control resources like vessel uh, dewatering tools and air monitoring instruments. That were staged on board that may not have been on every other you know tug or a tug of opportunity. So there was a lot of thought that was put into um, you know positioning uh, this tug at at Nia Bay and having a broad capability to uh, assist in in all kinds of uh, different situations. You know, Dan, I, I think um, just a little bit of follow up to that. I'm I'm part of a group. It's part of a group called the Alaskan Prevention Response Network. I chaired chaired that board. We recently consolidated with a an oil spill response organization up there to build out capabilities. But part part of what we did is we looked at if you're if you're going to go out there, can you safely connect? If you can safely connect, is the situation such that you might put too much strain on the tow wire and uh, have the deck fittings fail? And so we worked with Gloston, we hired Gloston, and we went through a bunch of engineering analysis and developed an emergency um, connection system. Uh, we just, I just had those folks uh, give a presentation to the emergency response towing vessel compliance group. I really feel strongly that we need to have that out there. And what it does really is allows uh, for an easy connection uh, to multiple uh, deck fitting points on the on a vessel and spreads that load out doesn't have uh, have it to, uh, during the tow um, put all the strain on on one deck fitting and so the whole point there is you don't want to get out there have the tool connect and then have it fail because the deck fittings couldn't hold so that was another part of the chain and and uh, we're going to go in that direction too so it's all part of this continuous improvement uh, continuous management of risk uh, process uh, that we've been we've been on for, I don't know, since the late 80s, I think, uh, more proactively. Well, I'd like to see that, I'd like to see that system. You know, yeah. when, I, when I used to rig for emergency towing when I was a uh, boat's mate in the Coast Guard, we would generally focus on walking out uh, a shot of anchor chain and then hooking up to, to that, but that's not always practical on some of these vessels. Exactly. Well, we'd happy to show it to you. And, and uh, we got patents around the world, five, six different countries now. Uh, Norway's buying some of these packages. We're not doing it to make money. We're, we're doing it to just make the tool available. 
Um, and so uh, that's, that's, that's our mission on that one. The R&D was not uh, a money-making thing. The R&D was, was to take a look at a weak leak in the chain and try to shore it up. So the yeah. initial tug was uh, funded by the state, right, uh, on, a, on a seasonal basis. We put it out there during the, the, the worst weather, but the desire was to make it available full-time. And so new funding was necessary uh mike what was the what were the different funding <laughs> mechanisms that were looked at well without getting into all the <laughs> details there there are a lot of funding mechanisms you know was the state going to charge shipping by one fee or another and then uh funded it themselves or going to be a hybrid or, or or what but without getting into state and federal preemption on prevention response the state folded this under the contingency planning requirements and so, and so if you're gonna you're gonna hold a contingency plan, and in your case, as you well know, an umbrella contingency plan, how how are you gonna how are you gonna uh, meet the meet those requirements? And I think this is this is the part of the a story where I think uh, we just sat around the table and said, I, I think industry and a public-private partnership, industry can carry out uh, the negotiations of how to fund this equitably uh, and uh, to go through a low you know, low, low bid, suitable bid process to see if we couldn't get the, the best cost effectiveness and yet still meet or exceed all the requirements uh, that were there. And so there was that agreement and that's what was written into the legislation. And then we had the tough job, it was about eight months of negotiations with the oil sector and the non, and the non-tank sector, trying to figure out uh, how, to, how to allocate cost. E eventually we went after a couple of concepts that are pretty easy. Um, if, you, if your ship's not arriving here, you shouldn't participate, right? So it's really a vessel that arrives here, calls on a Puget Sound port and departs using the Strait of Juan de Fuca, uh, not the inside passage, but the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And then, um, so you have the arrival and then like how much oil are you carrying? And so we looked at worst case discharge volumes because those are all available as you know, Dan, and in the vessel response plans and uh, publicly available. And so we had that information. Uh, and then, uh, and then we looked at um, on the on the non-tank side at the tonnage, uh, worst case discharge, and then credits if you had redundant propulsion because that's a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, cruise ships had it, and towed had it, and uh, polar tankers had it on the tank side, and, and uh, Alaska Tanker Company. So several several operating companies had redundant propulsion, which was really a big deal. Uh, and then we looked at credit for protectively located fuel tanks. Um, and then if they were, if they had ISO 14001 environmental certification, so we wanted to credit them for stepping to the plate and doing some other things. Uh, and so they pay, a low, they pay a lower amount of money. And, and that actually has worked quite well over, we're now in our 12th year, collecting the amount of money necessary without really changing the rates. We just really only changed the rates in the last year on the non-tank side. Uh, it's it's covered us, and that's with all the fluctuations up and down of how many vessels uh, call each year. So uh, the systems worked out really well, and we have a split with oil um, based on number of rivals and, and total amount of oil. Uh, and I think it was started out at 57% uh, oil and 43% non non tank, and we've gone down. We're going to be 50/50 this year. So it's the systems worked out pretty well that we negotiated it. We sort of had to get operators in the room and, and maybe the lobbyists out of the room to be able to move forward with that negotiation. But once we did that, it kind of fell into place. Um, and John was at all those meetings. So 
I think it really did um, kind of work through to more mechanical at that point as opposed to political. One of the things uh, <clears throat> that we, while we're at 50-50, uh, this is actually Mike's idea, I believe, was uh, that we make it a probability and consequence type equation. So uh, probability is the number of our vessel arrivals in the non-tank sector and the tank sector. And the consequence is the, uh, worst case discharge. So we calculate that every year and determine that uh, what that split should be. And that's how we've gone from 57-43 to 50-50. Uh, there are a few more non-tank sector vessels that call on Puget Sound. There are, uh, but there's a lot more oil being carried by the tankers. I remember back uh, with some of the, the debates around how to how to fund this, and and I I think it's awesome, you know what what you guys have done to figure this out, and I know it was very difficult um, as I had conversations, you know, with you, Mike and John, and and of course on the the oil side too um, during that time, and and but you guys are the experts, you know, you guys um, you know figured this out and you put your heads together and made it happen. Uh, I also remember during that session, a number being thrown out there that let's do this 50-50. It was 50% 50, uh, 50 of the, the pay from the oil industry and 50% from the cargo industry. So it's interesting to hear now that the equation is 50-50. See, we could have saved lots of time and energy just going to 50-50 back then. You know, Dale, I did so many spreadsheets, you couldn't believe it. And, I, and tip of the hat to Frank Holmes, who was the representative from Western States Petroleum Association. Really, he and I sat down and, and he didn't want to, I want to do exactly what I was doing on the non-tank side. He wanted to have it more of a, a fee, depending on what size tank belts you were. I had so many different kinds of vessels, I just felt... The entering argument had to be so obviously fair to each other that I wouldn't have to fill all these phone calls. And although John did when we first kicked it off, and and you're right, 5743 was because we didn't know exactly how many tank barges were going to be out there and uh, going through that area, and so it was overestimated. And after that, it got down to like 5446, 52 So it is interesting you bring that up because that's that's kind of how the splits worked out you know more or less when you look at worst case discharge you add it all up and all the gross tonnage and and so on it's just how it worked out mathematically last year the number was 52.48 it was tankers were paying the tank sector was paying uh, 52 non-tank 48 so we're at 50 50 we've only been at 50 50 a couple times but we actually had one year where the uh tank sector arrivals uh uh, we're down, and uh, we were at a 52-48 split where the uh, non-tank sector was 52. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely it. So you needed an organization that was going to manage all of this and created the Emergency Response Towing Vessel Compliance Group. Uh, how did that come about? How did you decide to use that structure? Well, I don't, I don't know that any of us have your radio voice, but we'll try to, we'll try to answer in that same interesting tone you got going there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, um, instead of a board of directors, I did not want to convey that we had operational responsibility because no one wants to sign up for taking on liability personally or as an organization for the uh, operational um, performance of, of the tug. 
And so we set it up with this bright magenta line between us and operational uh, performance. And the way we did that is um, we set it up in the, in the contracting um, with, in this case, FOSS, the service provider that we chose, um, that they had to be hired by the vessel owner operator or the Coast Guard or ecology. Now, typically what happens is between them and the owner operator. There are a number of contractual instruments that a tug company uh, can employ with a ship owner or operator to execute a contract. And we did not want to get in that business. Uh, they can execute their own contracts. Uh, you know, we, we had this vessel, this, this tug went up 500 miles south of Dutch Harbor not that long ago. I have no idea the details of it. We just had to backfill and it went up there and did its thing. And that's between FOSS and the owner operator with contractual details. It gets a little bit complicated when you get into um, extremist situations and so forth. Nevertheless, that, that uh, contract has to take place. We contract for it to be available in the operating area, typically tied up in Nia Bay, but it can also be in the operating area, which is like off the coast or in the outer strait of Juan de Fuca. And, and um, when they do drills and exercises, uh, they have to exercise their own due diligence and professionalism uh, and have a trained crew out there uh, capable of safely doing those kind of evolutions that they need to do. And, and that's why I, I proposed and the group agreed to, to have it called a compliance group because let's have the name reflect what we were doing. We're providing a compliance with the state requirement under the contingency plans but the operational execution of that depended on the uh, on being contracted to go do that. But, um, so anyway, that's that's why we came up with that name, and then we got uh, four tank vessel reps and four non-tank vessel reps, so we can take a look at the finances and make any adjustment we needed to do, and and maybe address uh, uh, issues like uh, for Sonia, you know, drills and exercises and and those types of things, and how to how to pay for fuel. And when you do get hired and you burn a bunch of fuel on a job, how do we get credit back, uh, you know, for, for that? Because obviously all that's being paid for by the particular vessel involved. I would, would add to that, that the uh, compliance group has a board of uh, eight voting members. And according to its uh, bylaws, two non-voting members, although uh, we don't have uh, WISMIC involved anymore. So WISMIC, Washington State Maritime Cooperative does not have a board member, um, but the Marine Exchange is a non-voting member because we do the administration, and I'm currently the uh, treasurer of the, the compliance group. Yes, and we did use legal help to help set that up, um, and everybody agreed to that, and it contracted with a lawyer to uh, help us set up those bylaws and, and to go through all those issues and cross T's and dot I's on them. Um, but for the most part, it's been on pretty steady run, collect the money, John uh, uh, pays uh, FOSS, and um, we have an operational summary, I, I get one of those a month, uh, and, uh, and we keep it, everyone informed about how often the tug's being used or not, and, and, and what the situations were uh, involved in every deployment. Um, so that's where it's worked out, I think it's worked out very well, we don't we don't have an overly bureaucratic set, set up here. It's a simple deal. We collect the money, pay FOSS, make sure the tug's operational, make sure backfills are out there and let them, let them uh, do their job when they're hired. So John, the Marine Exchange 
takes on the role of collecting the money, how does a how does a vessel sign up for coverage when it's going to make a call into Washington State? Every vessel that is required to have a uh, oil spill response plan in the state of Washington is required to have this uh, tug as part of that uh, emergency response towing or emergency response system, an ERS. That's a uh, is required by law. So every vessel must enroll with uh, the ERTV compliance group. We have a form that they must fill out. Uh, it can be fleet wide, it can be vessel specific, but uh, generally it's uh, vessels do it or companies do it by, by their fleet. Then they give us the vessel specifics. Uh, we can calculate quickly based on the equations that have been provided to us or the fee rate uh, rate schedule that's been provided to us by the tank sector. Uh, they have fixed fixed rates, whereas the non-tank sector has rates based on deadweight tonnage and uh, worst case discharge. And then we, as Mike mentioned earlier, we do give credits as well for uh, certain things that are considered to be voluntary over and above what's required by law or regulation. And uh, so they get those credits. We do that up and uh, then we uh, invoice them after their arrival uh, and uh, they pay. We have never, never had anybody not pay for the ERTV, which would be interesting because then we would pass that on to Dale for, for some extra effort on his part. So I've become a member. I've signed up. I've paid my fee. The tug is sitting at Nia Bay and now I'm coming in at Bowie J and I've lost power and I go to call out the tug. What is the process for activating the ERTV and what happens once I've activated it? So you mean the vessel owner operator? Yeah, the vessel owner operator. Because like you said, the compliance group doesn't, doesn't operate. You're not operational. Right. So, so typically, and I'll, I'll just tell you the typical case, the captain of the port, the vessel traffic, cooperative vessel traffic service would know about that. That gets to the captain of the port immediately. And the procedure there um, is essentially, and I, I put this in place back in 99, but I think they're still following it pretty, pretty much to, um, to the letter, require the nearest suitable tug. Well, as it happens, if you're going to be at Bowie J, the nearest suitable tug is almost certainly going to be the tug in the Bay. <laughs> and so it becomes pretty obvious that's where you're going to hire. They don't always do that because sometimes other circumstances allow them to hire another tug, but it's, it's there. And so then they have to comply with an order. Uh, and uh, then they um, obviously end up calling calling and, and, and discussing with FOSS and um, what we didn't want is FOSS to be engaged in a three-hour contractual debate. <laughs> you want to, if you're going to get hired, you got to mosey on towards the area and you're working out the details and the contract behind the scenes. So it's not real visible to the public or anyone else and all those details behind the scenes of working out the contract. The, the most important thing is you're getting the nearest suitable tug and you're getting it going your direction right now. And so it gets out there and you know what, guess what, if it, it self repairs to satisfaction of the Coast Guard, the tug can turn around and go back to base. Um, the, the whole important thing is uh, it gets going in that direction and they work out which contract. And as I said before, there's several, BIMCO, Lloyd's Open Forum, there's other kind of contractual arrangements that they can um, land on, but that's between then at that point, Foss and, and the owner operator. 
So John, will the Marine Exchange watchstander activate the tug on behalf of the ship operator? No. Uh, they must contact directly boss dispatch to hire the tug. So let's talk about all of the entities who could activate the tug directly and then what the tug might do given the different kind of circumstances. What are the things that we've seen the tug uh, assist with or what are the versions of assist that it might might go through? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of things there because <laughs> The tug's out there as part of the emergency response system, uh, and the state of Washington can hire the tug. So let's say you had a situation where you wanted it out there to assist in some other um, operation besides putting a lineup on a vessel or potentially standing by to put a lineup in a vessel or escorting. Maybe it's an oil spill response and you needed to move some equipment around or, or support that effort. Um, certainly the state can hire them. And of course, if you have a responsible party, you're probably talking to the responsible party about doing that if it's considered a necessary asset. But if you think that's being delayed for some reason, um, then uh, you know the state can, state can hire the, the vessel and so can the Coast Guard under a basic ordering agreement and they can execute it that way. It's, it's not typically what happens, but it's a tool in the toolkit in case the situation gets to that point. You know, we had a vessel, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, but I'll just throw this out there. We had a, a, a fishing vessel, Canadian fishing vessel, run out of fuel about um, 10, 12 miles inside the entrance. And they sort of sheepishly called and said, hey, can you come over and give us a tow? Well, the tug was four times bigger than the fishing vessel. And of course, it's out of fuel. So it wasn't exactly, you know, an Exxon Valdez sitting there that some people wanted to think it was. No, it was a fishing vessel. And there's I don't know if I'd call it a search and rescue case because the Coast Guard could have done it if it was really that kind of a case. But still, it was sort of, you know, get the five crew and back over here safely and so forth. It wasn't the best matchup of the tug size. But so you have that kind of thing all the way up to escorting, all the way up to standing by. And then into the things I think you're hinting at there, Sonia, that there are other things besides a disabled vessel. And they had, you know, macaw fishing vessels off the coast there. And uh, they, they dip out and around the corner there to... Um, um, stand by to assist uh, assist those kind of vessels too. But in a, in an oil spill, which I hope we're all doing a good job preventing, uh, you had some other gear to be deployed. It's an asset out there. It's a tool in the toolbox, and you certain you guys could pull that trigger if that's you or the Coast Guard or or the responsible party pull that trigger too. Yeah, and I think I was definitely getting at just the who amount like under the rules and the law and the contracting can call out the vessel. And then it's also interesting, it is a preparedness asset, but it's really a prevention tool. So even though it's in our preparedness regulation yeah. and that that built this, this partnership that exists that pays for the tug for all covered vessels. So all tank vessels and over 300 gross ton, um, non-tank vessels involved in commerce. Those are the resources that are paying into this amazing, amazing standby asset. But as Mike's, Story perfectly illustrated, other folks are using the tug. So fishing vessels aren't, aren't regulated vessels. They're not paying into that tug, but that asset is still ready and standing by. And that's a great benefit to the overall system and to ensuring we have fewer incidents in our waterways. And then further, you know, the Canadian vessels are often calling out, and I shouldn't say often, but there are call outs of the ERTV for the Canadian vessels that aren't coming to any Washington port, but there are, you know, incidents that reflect that need. So any any kind of feedback on 
that maybe Dale or Mike in terms of the history and to maybe the future. Well, just to pick up on the Canadian thing real quick, uh, and then I'll punt over to Dale. Um, there, there, there for a lot, a lot of years, um, there was talk up in Canada that the, that tow, towing vessel was not available to vessels calling their port. That was not true. It's available to be hired. Uh, incident, if the incident need is there, then one of those three entities, right? The owner operator, <laughs> the state of Washington or the Coast Guard can, can hire the vessel. And it, it, irregardless of whether they're paying into it. And a lot of folks that or originally enrolled said, well, I enrolled in it, so I get free use of the tug, right? No, <laughs> you're enrolling to have it exist and to have it sit there. You need it, you gotta pay for it. And, and so we've told the Canadians over and over again, John and I've worked on this uh, year after year after year, making sure that they, they know that that's the case. Uh, and you know, if a Canadian vessel is partially disabled and they wanna hire another tug from Victoria or something, that, that's up to them and Transport Canada and Transport Canada and the Coast Guard have to talk about all that stuff to make sure that uh, you don't allow a vessel to get an extremist while you're waiting for a, a tug from a little farther distance away to, to come in there. But um, yeah, that's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it can be used for, for other, other things, can be called out for other kind of reasons. And, um, the can and that involves uh, all the Canadian, uh, all the vessels calling Canada port without calling a Puget Sound port. Absolutely. And it's definitely, as you said, responded to some of those. And again, when we say responded, it, doesn't necessarily, it, it almost certainly doesn't mean putting a line up. It almost does certainly mean getting out there and standing by, and in some cases escorting to make sure the transit into Victoria or Port Angeles, what have you, is, is um, safe. The, uh, by the way, the Canadians have two vessels that uh, they call their emergency towing vessels or ETVs. And you'll notice that uh, they're stationed at the north end of Vancouver Island and up in Prince Rupert most of the time. So they're taking to, into account the fact that we have a tug at Nia Bay, essentially protecting their southern coast. Um, I would guess, and I don't have these numbers right in front of me right now, but many of the vessels that have been assisted one way or another, whether it be an escort or a, a tow, uh, with those that have been, uh, uh, some of them have been bound to, to Canada. So Canada, Canadian vessels have benefited from the tug at Nia Bay, clearly. Good deal for them. Yeah, uh, we've, we've, we've talked about it. <laughs> yeah, there's been, I mean, as many years, because one of the things that came out in that legislation, not only, you know, directing, um, you know, the, the, the formation of the Emergency Response Towing Vessel Compliance Group, but at the state level, we were directed to continue to reach out to Canada uh, and encourage their participation and, and pay, paying, uh, you know, into the into the uh, tug uh, for standby operations. And certainly, as John and Mike have talked about, uh, it has deployed to assist uh, Canadian vessels a number of times. It's, and, it, and it seems like it's the awareness just continues to, to grow and the knowledge about that, that resource that's, that's available. So every single time, you know, even, even as new uh, facilities are being proposed in Canada that could uh, increase uh, vessel traffic, for example, you know, we're using those opportunities to continue to pitch, um, you know, to Canada or those organizations to 
hey, here's a resource here, you know, pay into it. And I think John brought up a, a good point, even through the Oceans Protection Plan, you know, work that Canada has been doing, it's been pretty exciting to see their advancements. I think on the on the U.S. side, I always, I always felt that we were much stronger in our, our uh, uh, preparedness and prevention, you know, capabilities. But through that process, it's really uh, changing. So those tugs, uh, that that are, are are under contract, I guess, uh, with Canada right now. I think they're learning, you know, from that, you know, too. And as we've talked about this, it's we're in a business, we're in a world uh, where it's so great to have us all as as partners to learn and grow. Every single situation, we learn something from it, um, and we look at how we can improve um, uh, improve that system. So I don't know if Canada will pay into that uh, tug someday or not, but I don't think we've uh, missed an opportunity to continue to you know, pitch that idea. Uh, I know Mike and, and others haven't uh, hesitated to you know, pitch that uh, idea you know, either. I think the other thing too is you know, that really drove uh, a lot of this was our, our legislature in, in 2004 you know, directed a, a zero spills goal. So I think we all take that really uh, seriously. Uh, we emphasize strong prevention, you know, capability, but we we also uh, test our our preparedness capability all the time. And and having so so some of the things that might happen is there might be training opportunities where uh, the tug can deploy. We can pay for that for a training opportunity, or or we uh, include it as part of. Uh, uh, contingency plan uh, to test this capability uh, where uh, companies get, you know, credit uh, as part of their contingency planning uh, drills and exercise, you know, program. So there's, um, you know, the infrastructure um, out at, at NIA Bay, as I mentioned earlier, uh, doesn't support the, the level of, of uh, capability that we'd like to see out there from a preparedness uh, to respond uh, standpoint beyond the NEA Bay tug. But, um, but you know, there, that's a continued effort to help, um, help or support uh, the Macaw as they try to seek uh, funding that can, um, you know, change the infrastructure that they have out there so that we can continue to move uh, assets, hopefully, you know, from Port Angeles and pre-position, um, you know, more and better capability out at Nia Bay uh, in the future. So we continue to learn and grow. We continue to uh, test ourselves, uh, but we keep our eye on the prize and reducing the probability of consequence. John, when the tug goes off station on hire, what happens? Do we are we absent at the tug until it gets back? How is that managed? Usually what happens when uh, the tug gets underway for uh, an assist, it, uh, FOSS will backfill uh, immediately with another tug, usually positioned in Port Angeles because that's where it is available. It's usually often uh, one of the escort tugs, uh, Lindsay or Gar FOSS that are much bigger in the tug out at Nia Bay, couldn't get into Nia Bay uh, anyway. So they'll spend the time in, in Port Angeles. In, in the meantime, we're looking for another tug that can go out if it's going to be more than 24 hours, go out and position itself in uh, Nia Bay. 
Um, that has happened very few times, but it, it is happening. And they have put another tug out there. This year alone, we when Mike mentioned it earlier that the tug went up to uh, uh, a job up in the uh, uh, Gulf of Alaska, it never got to the vessel. The vessel restored propulsion before uh, the tug got there, but the tug got all the way to Kodiak Island before it turned around. In the meantime, we had to put something out at uh, Nia Bay in its place, and they put the, the tug, another tug out there and ultimately did a rotation anyway. Uh, so the tug that's out there now is not the tug that was out there that went up to uh, Alaska. I, I think it's worth saying that the, the, the legislation required 20 minutes to get underway. And, and uh, of course, it's at Nia Bay. And, but it could be between Nia Bay. It could be underway doing a drill or exercise or, 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 or what have you between uh, Nia Bay and, say, Port Angeles um, uh, uh, in the Strait. And recall that we, we're looking at a time distance problem here, right? So if a vessel loses power, what's the drift rate? How far are you from shore? What is the amount of time you have to get the, the tool called tug out there to um, re, uh, reduce the risk, minim, minimize the risk of uh, drift grounding? So, uh, you know, every mile you enter, a vessel enters into the Strait of Juan de Fuga, you get closer and closer to a higher, uh, I'll call it tug saturation. And you know a lot of tugs uh, running around tanker country up north for escort and assist and and so on. Um, and and so if you have vessels even in there that have a four or five hour transit out there, if a tug gets hired and it looks like they're going to be encumbered, they'll start looking around where the next available one is to cascade out there. Um, and so if a vessel is like you know forty miles in and twenty miles away, twenty miles away from the pilot station and has a problem it's more likely to get one of those tugs than it is to call the Nia Bay tug, but you could, they could, they could call the Nia Bay tug. Okay, come on in, come on in 40 miles and stand by or what have you. But the, the farther you come in, the more likely you're gonna have some other tug uh, do that. So you wouldn't have to do that backfill, but it just depends on the situation. Yeah, I've, 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 I think, I mean, that's, it's been a, a good model, I think for the, for the most part is, if a Nia Bay tug is in a situation like that, where it's heading into to Port Angeles, maybe it's assisting, you know, a vessel to get into uh, in, into Port Angeles, but another tug on its way out to meet up with it. So the Nia Bay tug will often turn around, you know, partway in the strait and, and head back out to the the uh, back out to Nia Bay. I think the the system really looks at. Uh, how do we make sure that we can keep that resource, you know, out there and its readiness is, is there? A lot happens, you know, within, you know, the sound and, and the strait, uh, often in, in many of those situations. And it seems like now um, there are more tugs of the capability um, that that is expected than there were, you know, many, many years ago. And we were talking about the minimum standards of a tug um, such as the one that's located at Nia Bay. Yeah, much more capable. With you much a screenshot of AIS that would show tug uh, saturation, as Mike has meant, uh, re referred to, uh, or I can share it right now. Uh, if you have the capability of putting that into the into the podcast to share it, but uh, if you would like me to share it right now, I will. No, we're audio only, John. So okay. no way to no way to share it. But maybe in the movie, when 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 uh, 
when our producer, Sonia Larson, gets gets us out there filming, I think we can put a screenshot of tug saturation in the in the video. Hey, if anybody can do it, she can. We you definitely can. can do it. You, do we can, you can paint a picture. Think of about 100 dots, because that's about what we had. 100 dots. <laughs> A hundred dots all over Canada and Puget Sound. And some of those dots are cold at the dock, meaning no crew, not ready to go. Some of those dots are engaged, encumbered, towing something. Some of them are engaged in assist or escort work. And some of them are standing by for the next job or transiting between jobs. So the, the deal is, as John, as John just mentioned, you look at all those dots and then you identify which, which of those dots is suitable. Uh, it doesn't mean they're all ready with the right gear and you know, and they're not encumbered, but you, you have all of those to choose from. That's called the International Tug Opportunity System. And, and um, it's, going to, it's going to get a higher degree of saturation as, as we, we've been following the pipeline expansion in Canada, and they're going to go to the north end of Vancouver and uh, ha have some level of tanker activity daily, and those are going to have tag escorts on them. So they're going to have um, a couple of other tugs introducing that system between North End Vancouver out to the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So you'll even increase that kind of tug availability a bit in that in that route. Uh, in the in the meantime, as as Dale sort of inferred, um, tugs have gotten a lot more capable. We'll go from single screw to twin screw to all sorts of different kind of propulsion, voice Snyder, um, you know, uh, arrangements and so forth. So lots more capability in the tugs and better ability to track them. We don't have to have a unique transponder system now. John has AIS. We know where all the vessels are. The vessel is not going to be drifting south um, of, at, of the Strait of Juan de Fuca and nobody knowing about it because now we know about it. Uh, so lots of other tools in the toolkit to make sure that we take full advantage of the time, uh, especially the initial time frame after um, uh, and a, a vessel has uh, suffered some sort of loss of propulsion or steering or at least reduced propulsion or steering situation. One question I do want us to get into is the tug is a prevention tool and we're talking about tug saturation more within the inner Puget Sound area. Yeah. What is special about staging in the Bay in terms of the vessel traffic lanes, in terms of the area to be avoided? Is there some additional elements of the prevention system that you guys want to talk about recognizing that the ERTV is a tool within the greater system. And yeah. there's been things that have been done to additionally minimize risk. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. So I, I think back to the zero spills, there's been zero spills from a drift grounding cargo vessels calling a Puget Sound ports and you go, well, then why do you have to do all this stuff? Well, yeah, we have wide deep waterways and, and yeah, that's part of that's, a major reason they protect the further you come in they're more protective they are and so we haven't had any of those incidents but if you look look at leading indicators you look at what kinds of things start uh getting your attention then then we start minimizing those and and that's what this whole thing is is that um yeah it's 11 to 17 miles wide uh the Strait of Juan de Fuca it's a thousand square miles of navigable water between the entrance buoy and the uh San Juan Islands uh, it's a big area. And so the, the tug is out there where the traffic lanes um, are entering or exiting the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And about 20 years ago, we worked hard with the Canadian uh, counterparts um, to push the entrance buoy farther out 
And part of that was to have vessels angled to their entry into the lanes farther offshore, provide a buffer zone, and to better comply with the area to be avoided that Sonia is referring to the National Marine Sanctuary on the, our side, uh, the US side. And then on the Canadian side, they've put in place in the last couple of years, a uh, marine sanctuary at Swisher Bank that's not year round, but it's mandatory to stay out of there for, uh, it's a feeding ground and uh, for whales and so forth. Uh, and we now have um, a voluntary slowdown area there on the outbound lake. So a lot of things are happening out there. It is a very big body of water, which is to our advantage. It's not like you're uh, coming into so many ports uh, major ports have uh, constricted waterways and canals and, and uh, less maneuvering, much less maneuvering room. But that's where it, it's all happening. Folks are exiting or entering uh, the Strait of Juan de Fuca offshore now instead of right off of Nia Bay at that, uh, at that entrance buoy. And that provides that, that layer of safety. We're working on something called the Pacific Safety Initiative. John counterpart Ed Page uh, up in the uh, Marine Exchange of Alaska and Kip Ludic down at the uh, in Southern California, working on um, more formal, you know, formalizing um, routing offshore to provide that buffer zone, um, really from Alaska and Aleutian Islands all the way down, all the way down. We have routing measures to the Aleutian Islands. That's a part of the group that I'm, that I participate in up there. And, uh, and that's to provide order and predictability and manage risk in that transit. And the, and the reason they go through there, it's a great circle route to call in our West Coast ports. And we can do that up and down the coast, provided more of a buffer zone that goes back to that time distance equation. Um, you have added time uh, and added distance and added time to uh, be able to respond. But to Sonia's, Sonia's point that all that stuff, uh, you know, exiting, entering and so forth happens right out right there. Uh, it just happens farther offshore now. And that uh, that provides, again, more time and more distance and more um, safety, really. Uh, in, in, in the entrance and exiting from the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and that's good. The Coast Guard just announced yesterday or the day before a port access route study that they're going to do for the entire West Coast. So we're going to be looking again at the entire West Coast uh, entrances to all the ports, uh, as well as the Canadians have a project uh, contracted out to look at any possible changes to the traffic separation scheme that we currently have in the Salish Sea. So uh, that project is ongoing. Uh, neither one of them is likely to be uh, finished anytime soon, but at least we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, uh, ahead, we'll, end up we'll end up formalizing that offshore routing scheme, no doubt in my mind. And it's been talked about for a long time. The BC States Task Force actually put out a recommendation, I believe it was 2002, on routing offshore 25 miles for non-tank and 50 for tank. Uh, frankly, a lot too many people know this, the tanker exclusion zone uh, was established off of Vancouver Island when the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline System was built and uh, they're gonna start bringing tankers down here instead of, instead of by pipeline by tanker, which, would, which ended up happening. And they wanted vessels to stay a certain distance off Vancouver Island. And I, I, I got involved in that one as Lieutenant JG and in, in investigating um, going on board vessels that cut inside that zone to to, to reduce that buffer area and Canada was quite alarmed by that. So this whole thing goes back quite a ways, that whole entrance, uh, Sonia, about a, a lot of attention to how do we do that in order and predictability. 
over 40 years of a cooperative vessel traffic treaty with Canada. It's worked really well um, in the two countries, transboundary waters. Um, and I think we've said the word continuous improvement here a few times. Um, that applies to the cooperative vessel traffic service. It applies to the development of the traffic lanes. It applies to that whole area out there. And it applies all the way through the system. So we'll just keep hunting and packing for incremental improvements and, and keep at it. I think the hard thing, you know, is, is to think about the system that's been developed, as you said, you know, Mike, 40 years plus. I mean, there's been there's been a, a lot of effort over a long period of time to focus on uh, prevention and minimizing the consequence, you know, of a, a spill or an incident. And and the systems continue to improve all the time. I wish I wish there was a way, a better way. I know we all try in a variety of ways to educate the public. I'm always still uh, amazed uh, with how many uh, people don't think there's anything out there that's preventing, you know, spills from occurring or um, impacts to the the environment or the the economic, you know, viability uh, here in our state. So it's a it's a constant effort that we all have to work on, you know, to continue to um, improve the awareness of this very complex system that's in place to uh, prevent spills, but also our readiness to to respond. Um, you know, really impressive. But I think when you, anybody goes out to Nia Bay, you know, you drive out there, um, you you uh, hike out there, or or see any part of that shoreline, and how difficult it is to get in there um, and uh, clean up uh, a, a spill. The the big it it just really lends to the importance of uh, having systems in place that prevent spills in the first place and, and uh, you know, keeping traffic away, uh, providing more time, ha have the vessel traffic service managing vessels, um, having the readiness. I mean, there's, all, there's that whole complete system that, that minimizes that possibility of, of impacts to those precious resources out there that we all enjoy. So Dan, we're not trying to put you out of work here, but when you're deploying, when you're deploying, boom, we don't want it to be because there's oil in the water. <laughs> I don't want it to be because there's oil in the water either. You yeah, know, you we... just want exercise, exercise, training. That's that's the goal. That's all it's that, a it's a fun it. and beautiful day out there and you're enjoying <laughs> the scenery and you're having fun testing the equipment. Yes. But like but like you, you know, the you can't get those first hours back. You know, you need nope. to get the tug underway earlier and in oil spill response, yeah. you know, we we deploy boom and, and gear early, even even if it turns out after the fact that there isn't any oil in the water. That's the way we like it to turn out anyway. So Dan, my old adage used to be if you do that and nothing happened, it was a great unannounced drill deployment. <laughs> that, that's right. You got to get out there. There's a, a quote. I don't know if this is an accurate quote. Uh, it was attributed to, to General Patton, who said something like, you know, do, doing something that's 80% correct now is better than doing something that is 100% correct four hours from now. You just Perfect. You got to get out there and get it Perfect. done. Right. I think you missed a couple of colorful words in there, but that's that's it. Well, that would have been patent style, right? <laughs> that's absolutely right. I do want to plug before we go the fact that the Washington State Maritime Cooperative and the Washington State Department of Ecology are partnering under the direction of our fine uh, producer, Sonia Larson, 
to produce a video to to help do that education piece that Dale was just referring to, to educate the public, to educate the users of the ERTV system, so that John doesn't have to tell this story over and over and over again at every new event. I'm sure he's tired of it. He's looking forward to re retiring. So we're going to try to get it on tape, get it, get it done once. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. This has been a great episode. I appreciate everybody coming on and, and talking with Captain Venture, Captain Moore, Dale Jensen from the Department of Ecology, Sonia Larson, our intrepid leader. Thank you all so very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Tactics Meeting. As we continue to try to educate and entertain those in the emergency response and oil spill communities. If you have an idea for the show or would like to be a guest, you can email us. The email address is podcast at thetacticsmeeting.online. I hope to see you all at Clean Pacific. Driving up there tonight. See you all tomorrow, August 17th, and Wednesday, August 18th. Until next time, stay safe.